Well, it is uh, my pleasure to welcome up our preacher for this morning. Um, he's a guy that, that I love, and I've had uh, the opportunity to meet him on several occasions. And he's actually spoken and taught for several things we've done here at the church. Uh, he's a friend of some of the guys here that have gone to Master's College and have worked out there. Uh, but it's a pleasure for us to have him. He's a great guy, a great preacher, a great teacher of the Word. And uh, so I'm going to invite him up right now, Mr. Joe Keller. Good morning. Nice to see all of you here. It's great to be back. Uh, we really do, uh, my family and I just uh, really do cherish the fellowship here at Grace. Uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be a part of the Master's College and to partner with and to uh, walk with local churches uh, that hold high the Lordship of Christ and the sufficiency of His Word. It's just a great privilege to be a part of a fellowship like this and to come uh, and to bring God's Word. It's always nice to see alumni and current students uh, out in the audience as well. And um, it's it's in times like these where maybe out, outside of the rhythm uh, of what you're learning uh, through God's Word expositionally uh, as it's being taught from this pulpit, we get the opportunity maybe to look at something that uh, that would be a little bit more topical in nature, obviously based expositionally, okay? Uh, but uh, an opportunity to look at Scripture uh, from, a, from a systematic standpoint, from a biblical theological perspective about a, a particular topic that we can look at the Scriptures and be able to apply that uh, to every detail of life. Now, obviously, we believe here that that the Word of God is sufficient, which means that it applies to uh, every detail of life. Uh, But sometimes you look in here and you go, well, it doesn't have the internet on here. It doesn't say, should I invite my uncle to my Super Bowl party? You know, those kinds of things. It's not in there, but it is, right? That all the principles, all of the things that we would need for this life and godliness, as, as it pertains to everything, is found within the scriptures. And Second uh, Peter 1 talks about that. So today, uh, we're going to look at, uh, at a topic that I think applies, I know applies, to everybody in this room uh, at one point or another, whether you're 8 or whether you're 80. I know this is family time, so hopefully it'll be able to apply to all of us. It's going to be on the topic of fear. The topic of fear, okay? Boo, okay? All right, the fear, okay? Um, but, but in particular, we're thinking about a, a particular kind of fear, okay? One that I think, if we were all to be honest, applies to us in one way or another, and that we can remember very vividly. And it's the fear of man. It's the fear of man. Um, what is it, right? What is it about um, people, and how they can impact us, how they can shape how we feel and what we do. Um, it's a very powerful thing. I remember on the schoolyard when I was a little kid, right? Um, you would say to your friends, right? Sticks and stones would break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Kind of crossing your finger, hoping that that was actually true. I think sometimes I'd rather get a big rock to my forehead, right? <laughs> Instead of some of the ways that people have hurt me or have influenced me. Well, Matthew 23 uh, talks about, uh, Matthew 23, 27 through 28, 
It talks about the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love people, right? To love people. But sometimes uh, we get those commandments mixed up, don't we? We end up loving people first and foremost, and then trying to love God after that, isn't it? Maybe as a springboard text, if there is one text that maybe could encapsulate uh, theologically what we're going to be unpacking today, it would be this, Proverbs 9, Proverbs 9, 25, it says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's great, right? The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. With that as our context, let's pray and ask the Lord to open up the eyes of our hearts as we think theologically about this idea of what it means uh, to fear the Lord. Let's, Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for these next few moments as we look uh, theologically at your word, really to mine uh, what it says about this topic of fear. And I pray that it would be practical and that it would be an encouragement to our hearts today, uh, that we would be able not to fall into a snare of a fear of man, but rather we would trust in you and be safe. God, help us now as we look at your word to accomplish these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so what does the Bible mean when it talks about fear, right? Well, there are lots of different words in the Hebrew and the Greek that kind of unpack this idea of fear. And essentially, it's, it's what we commonly understand, right? That it has, it has this component of being afraid, right? Um, it has a component of alarm or fright, But it also, at the same time, has this idea of reverence and of awe. That fear in the Bible, really, has this overarching idea that there is something that is bigger than us. That then either we should be afraid of because it's stronger than us, or, at the same time, to also exalt because it is greater than us. That's fear. So as you think about it, okay, so everybody just kind of starts to think a little bit about fear and the things that you fear, right? That, that, that kind of maps on, doesn't it? You know, you think, okay, it's something that I know is bigger than me that could harm me, but it's also something bigger than me that I could celebrate and honor, okay? So the big question becomes then, why do we fear men? I'm, I'm kind of using, right, Grace here, I know you appreciate and, and are invested in education. So I'm using kind of a Socratic method, right, of asking questions. So that's going to be our outline, how we're going to move through for those of you who are taking notes. All of you have detailed outline in your notes? Uh, no, no, you don't. It's a blank sheet of paper. I was just kidding. That was a joke. Okay, so anyway, the question is, why do we fear man, right? Why do we fear man? I think if we were all to just start to raise our hands, we could mind some things. Here are some reasons, I think, why we fear man, why I fear man at times. Uh, is because uh, people can affirm and comfort us, can't they? Right? Affirm and comfort us. Uh, people can bring companionship. Um, so um, so there's, a, there's a part where the companionship is gone, that there's a fear there to, that might change our actions. They give us physical needs. Uh, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. 
There's a fear there that, they're, that they have some sort of power that can change and influence us. They can reject and ridicule or despise us. Um, they can attack and oppress and threaten us, right? Um, all those things are, are reasons why we can fear man. As a matter of fact, as you think about fear and working through and thinking about a fear of man, it's interesting that there's a duplicitous nature to fear, or maybe a complementary nature to it, because not only do we see fear in terms of what somebody can bring to us, right? That somebody can harm us or bring something to us. But it's also that we fear that that same entity can take something away from us that we want to keep. So it's not just things that they can bring upon us that we don't want, but that there's a fear that that entity can take away from us something that we want to keep. So as we think about fear, that really fear is more rooted in our own hearts. How we understand that particular object, how we think about that thing that really does shape how we act. That if we were to have, let's say, a right mindset of man and what they could bring upon us, that maybe that would actually shape our reaction to them. And consequently, when we have a right attitude and understanding of who God is, that at the same time, that could actually shape our understanding and a right fear of him, right? Um, because that really is the way that you fight the fear of man. How do you fight the fear of man? You actually fight the fear of man with fear. So if there's a little a catchphrase maybe today you walk away with, right? What in the world was Joe talking about today? Fight fear with fear. Fight fear with fear. Fight your fear of man with your fear of God. You fight your fear of man with your fear of God. It's, a, it's an argument, really, not of, not of not fearing, but fearing the right thing. Because if you think about it, right? Um, we realize how fragile we really are, don't we? And our fear of man really exposes that at times. When you find yourself in that place where you're anxious, where you're being manipulated by, where you're afraid, and you realize how fragile and powerless you really are as a human being. How much more so do we understand that as we stand before an awesome and holy God, how, how absolutely powerless we really are. So as a human being, we've actually been designed to fear. So the question is not not fearing because you're going to fear something, right? Just like you're going to love something. The question is rather, what do you fear? So the way that you fight a fear of man, theologically, is that you fight it with an accurate fear of God. It's an it's a argument from the greater to the lesser. One of my favorite passages in relating to this is, uh, is Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says this. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <laughs> That's a great perspective, right? Think about that, that, that the argument is from the greater to the lesser, that a fear of God, an accurate fear of God, knowing who he is, 
and giving him honor and praise and reverence to that actually can eclipse your fear of man. So let's talk about what is the fear of God? Okay. What is the fear of God? Well, this fear of God, again, from, from the scriptures, thinking in terms of Proverbs 9, 10, 1 John 4, 18, that these two passages talk about that there are two different ways to fear God. And they both encapsulate our understanding from the Greek and Hebrew words of what it means to fear God. Is that there is a fear that he can destroy you. And there's a fear that he is, he is worthy of our reverence and awe and submission. And depending on the particular passage is one emphasizes one over the other. That is there a powerful and judgment component to our God? You bet. But yet at the same time, there's also a sense where we can honor him and give reverence to him. The Christian holds both reverent fear, reverent fear, dreadful fear in, in harmony with one another. That we can both fear God because he can destroy us and we can fear him because he is worthy and otherness than us. That even grammatically made sense, but kind of worked out in my heart. Okay. And the reason being is, is because the Christian can hold both a reverent fear because our dreadful fear has been propitiated by the blood of Jesus. Woe to the man who does not know Jesus. By the way, as a footnote, really love the flower thing. I know that might be familiar to you. You might, you know, however you might feel about that. But as a, as a guest this morning, that was a great encouragement to me. Somebody explained about the roses, right? And there's a sense in which, could you imagine that there would be a person who would know how great God is and to give reverence to him because he is so large and greater than him, but yet not to have his wrath to be propitiated upon him. Imagine the double nature of that in someone's soul. But praise to the Lord Jesus Christ that we can look upon his wrath and we can see then the covenant love of Jesus Christ. How much more so should that catapult our, our reverent awe and affection and exaltation to God himself and to fear him in an accurate way to where it shapes us. So that's how we look at that fear of God. It's that, it's that respectful worship. It's that respectful worship and knowing that we don't have to cower in helpless anticipation of his powerful acts, but we can exalt him because he is powerful. So that's really a thought of that fear of God. It's looking at God and knowing that he is, he is powerful and he is other than us. And that we can, we can see him in juxtaposition to who man is. If you look at those two. Again, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. So then, for kind of the remainder of our time, this should be helpful for us to kind of unpack why we should fear God over fearing man. You're like, okay, Joe, that's fine. But let's go pound for pound on this, okay? Let's kind of compare the two. And I hope today that by the time that we're done looking that you can see accurately um, or rather get the two arguments in your mind as to, as to what man can offer you and what God can offer you or what can man do to me 
But yet, what can God, or how powerful is man to influence me, and how powerful is God, right? Well, there are a couple of ways to think about that. How do you fight for this, this fear of God over a fear of man? How do you fight the fear of man with an accurate fear of God? How does that, how does that work itself out? Well, there are a couple of different ways. The first one is this. It's really because of God's nature, right? As you think about God and you try to understand who God is, you have to first and foremost think about his nature. Um, Erickson talks about this awe-inspiring, transcendent nature of God. Have you ever thought about that? For those of you who have little kids in the audience, you try to explain who God is, right? Is God just like a big guy in the sky, you know? Is God, you know, everywhere? Yes, okay, kind of. But the best way to describe God is that God is transcendent. He's different than us in every way. Erickson writes it this way and says, God is separate from and independent of nature and humanity. God is not simply attached to or involved in his creation. He is also superior to it. Remember Isaiah 6? Oh, we have a musical group, Majesty. They can't, I don't think, sing without quoting Isaiah 6, right? Holy, 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 right? That God is different, that he's other, that he's, that he's transcendent. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says that, that God's thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are not your ways. For goodness sake, read Revelation 1. I mean, if you ever want to get a sense of the otherness of God, read Revelation 1 and then read Revelation 21. And I always think it's kind of an interesting commentary on John because John, the author of the book of Revelation, was also the, the disciple whom Jesus loved and actually nestled up against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Isn't that an interesting idea? That at the Last Supper, this disciple was able to, to lay upon and to rest in the humanity of Jesus as a beloved friend and rabbi and savior. But yet also in Revelation 1, to be able to fall flat on his face and to see the risen Christ to come back in transcendent power and authority. And that's how we should view God. That God is not your buddy. That God is not the making of your own doing. And that in today's society, right? The, the pluralistic uh, postmodern idea of what religion and spirituality is wants to make whatever sort of God or spirituality to fit your particular subculture that you like to have God to be. God is bigger than that. God is huge. God is transcendent. God is bigger and better and more powerful than your best idea. And my best idea, because his ways are greater than my ways and his thoughts are greater than my thoughts. How arrogant it is for humanity to begin to, to describe and to make whom their God is. The Bible speaks about that, doesn't it? Can the, can, the, can the vessel say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Does the created thing have any authority at all to be able to look upon the thing that is much transcendent that they are and to say, you then need to be the way that I've described you to be? 
Doesn't that put fear in your heart? Doesn't that give reverence and awe to a God? I want my God to be bigger than I am. I want my God to be transcendent. I want my God to be better than any sort of idea that I would have. I want him to be much more than that because I know how frail I am. And the beginning of seeing and fearing God that battles against my fear of man is to be able to see that person in front of me and to feel their influence and to see that in juxtaposition to the God who reigns over them. Helps bring that to perspective. So that's one way. We have several more, right? Here's another one. So first, because of his nature. Secondly, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more in four ways, because of his character and actions towards us. His character and actions towards us. Here's, and, and I'm putting those, so we're going to look at his character for a little bit, so we know that God is other. We're going to look at his character for a little bit, and then we're going to see how that translates to us, and then we're going to apply that to our fear of man. Okay? Sounds like fun. First and foremost, his character, his omnipotence, right? He is all-powerful. Here's a great definition of that. Um, Charles Hodge says this, by removing all of the limitations of power as it exists in us, that we raise to the idea of the omnipotence of God and that he can do without effort and by volition, whatever he wills, that is the highest conceivable idea of power. And that is, which is clearly represented in the scriptures. Pretty much God is powerful to do anything. And there is nothing more powerful than God. Nothing more powerful than God. Isaiah 8, 12 through 13 says that we shouldn't be motivated by men's empty threats. Rather, we should look to God who has real power. If you've ever read through the Psalms with this idea in your heart, David was afraid. He had literal guys wanting to kill him all the time. And what did he rest in? He didn't rest in what man could do in his power, but he rested in God's power. Psalm 27, 1 through 4 talks about that. Psalm 56, 3 through 4. And further on in the chapter in 10 through 11, he says that, My Lord is my strength. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength. Whom shall I fear? And how does that omnipotence relate to us in our actions? He sustains us through his providence. If he is omnipotent, that means that he is in his character. He is all powerful. How does that relate to us as those who are redeemed? It means that his providential care can sustain us. That means that there's nothing. There's nothing that can go outside of God's providential care. Because that would say that something would be more powerful than God himself. Grudem says that, that, he, uh, that he orchestra, or he's created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Romans 8, 28 and 30, we're all familiar with that passage that he orchestrates all things according to his unfolding plan for our good. Proverbs 21.1 says that God controls all the actions of every king, even unbelieving kings. Philippians 2.13 says that he guides the hearts of all believers to work according to his good pleasure. 
Matthew 6, 25 through 34 says that his providential care will supply every need. And that's further explained in Philippians 4, 19. James 1, 16 through 18 says that in the face of temptation, remember that every good gift that's given to you is by God. So how does that relate to the fear of man? Well, when we fear man, that we fear that man can attack us, that man can oppress us, that man can threaten us, that man is the one who provides for our physical needs. We need to remember that there is a God who is omnipotent and providentially cares for us. Let's not give, let's not give deistic power to human beings, but to remind ourselves again that they can't do any of those things outside of God's will. I think some of the some of the illustrations of that is twofold. One is there is the bully, the bullied. Look, I remember what that feels like. And you think that bullying only happens on the playground when you're nine? You haven't been in corporate America, have you? Right? To feel oppressed by another person, to feel as though that you have no power. To feel as though that this person can do with you whatever they would wish or please, and so then you become afraid of them and you get manipulated by them. The way that you battle against that is to remember again that there is a God who is bigger than the bully. And that we can rely upon his strength and his power and his providence. And to have the courage to stand up against a weak and frail human being in light of the God who is powerful and sustains and creates the whole universe. Of which we are his children. The other one is the uh, the material guy and girl. It's kind of a hard one too. There's somebody who has all the cool things and, and has all the cool stuff and kind of is in front of you and says, hey, you have to have all this cool stuff too. And then you feel this fear that you, in order for you to be cool, you got to have the cool stuff that that person has. Whether that's a designer t-shirt or, or a motorhome. To be manipulated by a fear of man and what they would think about you and what they would say about you. Or rather, how they would accept you or how they would love you. To look at that in juxtaposition to saying that that person has no power over me. And that I will rest upon the providential care and the omnipotence of my God. And I'm not going to allow you to define for me what my resources are. Because I have a transcendent God of who is powerful enough. So here's another one. God's character, okay, helps us in our fear of man. Second one is his omnipresence, right? His omnipresence. Now, Stephen Charnock uh, writes his omnipresence as, as this, that God essentially everywhere present in heaven and on earth, that God is everywhere. As eternity is the perfection whereby he hath neither beginning nor end, so immensely or omnipresence is that whereby he hath neither bounds nor limitation. It's not saying that God is everything, okay? Right? The tree worshiper that lives next door to me would say that, okay? I am not the tree, okay? Right? The tree is not God. But God is everywhere simultaneously. Because the canopy of his being goes over all of his creation simultaneously. There's nowhere that you can hide. There's nowhere that you can run. That God is everywhere. 
Psalm 139 talks about that. I always love that. I love that passage to remind myself again, because sometimes it feels as though that people are the ones who see everything that you do. It's people are the ones that, that you should perform for. It's people who are the ones who you should please because they see you and they can bless you. But rather, as we think about it, and we eclipse that fear of man with the fear of God, we say that God is everywhere. God sees everything. So therefore, how much more so this transcendent, powerful God who now is everywhere. Now, in the moment when I'm afraid of this particular person and what they can do to me, remembering that God is there becomes a comfort to me. And then particularly, well, that's why, uh, that's why in Joshua 1, 9, our Lord Jehovah says to Joshua, be strong and courageous because God is with you. God is with you. He's with you. Even in difficult times, talks about that in Psalm 23, 4. He's everywhere. Now, how does that relate to us personally? It's, it's that his, um, his omnipresence directly relates to us because that should comfort us because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. God is not only everywhere, but he's resident in your soul. This is the dynamics of the new covenant. The old covenant is gone that you needed to gain access to God uh, through, through, the, um, through sacrifices and through the temple. But now the new covenant is that he then writes his law on our hearts and the presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. So is God um, omnipresent to everything? Yes, but particularly to you, he resides in you and comforts you and is with you in presence in the Holy Spirit. We could spend a lot of time on this subject. I'll kind of like, like buzz the tower on this one a little bit, okay? Um, the Spirit indwells us in Romans 8, 11. It says in Acts 9, 31 that the Spirit comforts us. John 14, 16 through 26 says that, that Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit as a helper to bring us into all truth. Romans eight twenty six says that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit indwells, it guides, it empowers, it sanctifies, it bears witness, it, it gives joy, and it gives discernment, and it bears fruit. To the person who fears man, who does what man would ask of them to do because they're afraid of being alone, afraid of being rejected, Doesn't that sound familiar to us? One of the reasons why we would let another person to dictate how we act and we fear them and we give them reverential awe and and we're manipulated by that is because in some ways we don't want to be rejected and we don't want to be alone. But yet the way that we fight that fear is to realize that you're not alone. As a matter of fact, the God who knows how many hairs that you have on your head that knitted you within your mother's womb has redeemed you into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And now you are now united with him and the comforter, the helper, the presence of God himself in spirit resides in your heart and that you are known by him and that he loves you because of Christ. You're not alone. And although physically you might feel alone in the presence of man, you can comfort your soul by knowing that you're not alone. 
You fight fear with fear. Maybe a couple of um, illustrations about that is um, the girl or the guy that's always in a relationship. You ever notice that? There's usually some guys or gals that are just always need a boyfriend, always need a valentine, right? And sometimes as you kind of move deeper into that, you realize that, that a lot of that is motivated by that they're just alone. They don't want to be alone. And so they allow other people to manipulate them. They allow other people to dictate their actions, what they wear, how they act, what they say. And they fall along in their fear of man because they don't want to be alone. Let the presence of your God be an encouragement to you today, friend. Know that you're not alone. And you're not without comfort. And you're not without affirmation because there is a God who brings all of those things to you because of His great love and His sustainable power and His presence comes to you and says, you are not alone, but you are my chosen child that I've redeemed for my glory and for your good. Don't sacrifice that fear for the fear of something that's so fleeting and yet has none of those things. Here's another one. The addicted to what I call the attaboys, right? Attaboy. Attaboy. Work really hard, work really hard for what? So that you can have somebody go, attaboy. Good job. You're valued. You're important. I enjoy you. I love you. I think, I think you're, you're, you're valuable. Okay. And then that begins to dictate how you act and how you move and how you think. And, and those things then, then make you anxious or it makes you happy. And that finite man, their connection and their um, companionship and their affection upon you manipulates everything that you do. How much more so should we be like, like 1 Corinthians that says that the love of God controls me. Not to live for myself anymore, but for him who saved me. No longer to think for my own interest, but for the interests of others. The love of Christ controls me to do that. You can find that in Philippians 2. You can find that in Colossians 3. So one way to fight the fear of man is to fear God. And you can fear God and you can exalt Him and you can adore Him and you can, you can um, give Him reverential awe because you know... Um, that he is with you and that he's powerful and that he's present. Two more, quickly. The other one is, is his justice. His justice. Reminding ourselves of the character of God. Why in the world would we ever gather together, right? I mean, you guys gather together on a Sunday to know and remind yourself of who God is, right? What a great illustration, again, for us to know that God is just that he's just, that he's right. We see that, uh, again, Grudem speaks, he says, God's righteousness and justice means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. And he is himself the final standard of what is right. Isaiah forty-five nineteen says, I, the Lord, speak the truth and I declare what is right. Romans 3, 25 through 26 says that Jesus is both the just and the justifier. Right? Everybody's going to be held accountable 
to what they do and what they say as they stand before God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 talks about that, and so does 1 Peter 1 through 7. When we talk about fearing the right thing, let us put our fear and our awe into the justice of God. That God will not let anything to go unjudged. That God will be the judge that one day every knee, every knee will bow. The bully, the manipulator, the person who who lays themselves upon you that you fear, that one will bow their knee to fearing God. And so then it becomes a lot easier for me (laughs) to fear him today. Sometimes I actually, I'm telling you, listen, this is just confessions of a man pleaser, right? Okay. I mean, I'm not coming here saying, oh, well, all of you, all of you think about these things, not me. I mean, this is for me, right? Sometimes when you stand there and you, and you look there and you go, man, this, this person is talking to me and it's, and, 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 and he's threatening that what he says is right and wrong. And if I don't do what they say, then they're going to judge me. And I think, okay, what am I going to do here? I remind myself again that really, in the ultimate sense, it is going to be God who judges me and you according to his word. So I'm not going to let you in this moment to have, to have authority over me because I know that there is a greater authority that will judge both of us. So then I am going to live and I'm going to care for you and I'm going to love my enemies and I'm going to submit to my God and I'm going to do what is right according to his standard and his righteousness and his justice and not going to let you define what that means for me. I'm going to fear my God and I'm not going to, or I'm going to fight not to fear you. How does that relate to us? God says that he uses that justice and that righteousness to transform our hearts to transform our hearts through sanctification. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 says that I will train you to grow in righteousness. The discipline of the Lord and how he moves into your heart and why he brings things into your life is that he brings his righteousness and his justice to bear on your soul that you know that he's committed for you to understand his righteousness. I love the end of Hebrews 12 where it talks about Uh, where it talks about um, us being trained by the peace, uh, being trained by the discipline of the Lord, which means he brings trials into our life, hard things into our life that we can learn from and grow and to understand his mind and his righteousness and his word that it would transform us, right? And says that for those who have been trained by the discipline of the Lord, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Peaceable fruit of knowing that you're right before God and his laws. Let me tell you, even when, even when we are manipulated by some man's standard as to how I should live, it's never described as peaceable, is it? Answering the fear of man is that a fear of man uh, might, might say, well, this person can reject me or they can ridicule me or they can despise me. And so they, so they run away and they, and they don't confront things and they don't speak truth to one another. And so they're, they're going to say, well, I'm not going to say that or I'm not going to speak truth to that person because they might, they might judge me. They might have power over me. The word of God is very clear that the true one and only objective truth in this world is the one that's revealed in scripture. 
And so that I can be empowered to, with gentleness and kindness in my heart, knowing that I'm a created being, that I can say, listen, you are declaring this as truth before me. You are now trying to lord over me with this, but I am going to be held accountable to God and his truth. And so then I will stand before you rightly. Let's think about maybe in... Uh, kind of wrapping up our thing and maybe put together some practical application of that. So we've thought about what is fear. We've, we've maybe even juxtapositioned those ideas as to the fear of man versus the fear of God. We've, we've having an opportunity to, to look at the character and nature of who God is and how we can, how we can relate that to when we're standing before a human being. At the same time, we can see God and you look at both of them at the same time and you're able to maybe trust and to submit to the fear of God and not be manipulated by the fear of man. Well, How do we practically fight our fears? You do practically fight it in faith in your heart. You do, don't you? Don't I? That it's, that it's always this, it's always this juxtaposition as I weigh those two options. As I see man and I see God, I, I, I weigh them both together in my heart. Romans 1, 22 and 23 says that we weigh the creation, the creation to the creator. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says that we, that we make a choice between what is seen and what is unseen. Romans 6, 11 and 2 Corinthians 5, 15 says that we make these choices between the physical and the spiritual. That's the place. That's the place when you practically deal with the fear of man is being able to think in terms of looking at the physical thing versus the spiritual versus the created thing versus the creator versus the seen versus what is unseen. And you ask the God of creation to help you to be able to fear what is right and not to be distracted by what is just in front of you. To have an eternal mindset, to set your mind on the things above, to transform your, your heart through the renewal of your mind in the word. And Matthew twelve thirty three through 37 says that out of that heart then will flow actions. Out of that heart will flow actions. What are some practical steps to cultivating a fear of God? Um, First, these are just practical implications. So you're there, you're at that crux position. You see both. Uh, you see, it, it's almost like maybe some of you. You remember Chuck Jones and the old like, Looney Tunes stuff? You remember that, right? Remember that, right? Daffy Duck could be there, right? And he wants to blow up Bugs Bunny, right? Is everybody, is everybody with me here? It's practical, okay? That's <laughs> how I see theology. Never invite me back. Okay, so so on this side, right? He's ready. He's got the gun. He's going to shoot Bugs Bunny, right? And, and he stands there, and then what happens, right? There's a, there's, there, there's a, there's a, 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 an angel, right? Daffy Duck goes on and goes, oh, don't shoot, Bugs. He's your friend, right? He's your friend. And then he turns, and then what happens, right? There's this little, like, devil, right? <laughs> Pitchfork, Bugs, you know, Daffy says, nah, blow him to smithereens. I'm not quite sure what a smithereen is, but that's always what ends up happening, right? And isn't that true that Chuck Jones, that director, really, really encapsulated what happens in our hearts when we're dealt with a choice? And you, and you, and you fight them in your heart and you work with it in your heart. 
And as you look towards a person who you are tempted to fear, you have to judge in your own heart, what is it that I'm going to believe in that particular moment? Am I going to fear man or am I going to fear God? Am I going to fear the thing that is seen or the thing that is unseen? And am I going to fear the physical or the thing that is eternal? And to remind yourself in that moment the frailty of man and all of the goodness and character of God. And to see those two things juxtaposition to one another. And then to walk in faith. And to say that my God is more real to me than the promises and the threats that you might be giving me in my heart. So what are some practical ways to cultivate a fear of God? And we'll, we'll leave these as things that we can move and think about. First is to identify what you fear. Isn't it? Just think about that a little bit. What is it that you fear about man? What is it? Is there a particular person? Is there a particular situation? Identify it. Talk about it. Think about it. In the dynamics, what is it that they promise? What is it that they threat? That then can be compared to what God promises and what God can deliver. Obviously, Scripture, having the mind of God. You can see that in Proverbs 2, 3 through 5. Another one is, is dependence upon God himself to help you fear him. Jeremiah 32, 38 through 41 and, and Psalm 86, 11 says, says to cry out to God and he will reveal himself to you. Obviously to draw yourself away from evil things and influences. Proverbs eight thirteen talks about that. How can you love God when you love the world more? Probably one of the most practical ones, and we can even begin to do it today as we all go to lunch and hang out together and enjoy each other's fellowship today, is to practice the presence of God. Practice the presence of God. There's a great Puritan, Brother Andrew, who talked and wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God, and it was introduced to me as a young person. And... Uh, and I was talking about this, 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 old, this, old, um, this old man who would practice the presence of God as he made bread. And again, how much more so would the fear of man move away in our hearts if we accurately saw the God that we looked at today in every moment and in every place? And that we would practice volitionally in our heart to see God and, and the truth of his scripture. And to be able to see that and relate that to everyone that we meet. Let me tell you, it translate in how you deal with, how you engage with, how you love, how you walk with everybody around you. And it would give us a, a selflessness and a joy and a holiness and a confidence that would give us the opportunity to worship the right thing and to fear the right thing. Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12 sums it up. I like um, preaching on the book of Ecclesiastes to, um, uh, to the college students. One is because it just kind of brings some perspective. Here's a guy who's done everything in his life, right? And, uh, and at the end of it all, he searched for power, he searched for prestige, he searched for everything. He allowed this world to dictate everything. And he says at the end of it in chapter 12, verse 13, it says, The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Let that be 
the encouragement of our hearts today as we look through the scriptures to fear God, uh, most importantly, above everything else, and to have joy in the process. Let's pray. Dearest Lord Jesus, we, uh, we pray to you because you are our God whom we love and we cherish. Lord, I pray that today as we got the opportunity just out of the regular pace of the pulpit to look theologically at the topic of fearing man, that you would give us uh, a real sense of your presence and that we would fear you above all things. Lord, help that to translate our relationships, translate how we speak and how we walk, because we want most importantly to you to be, have the highest place in our hearts and to transform how we act and live. Lord, I pray that these practical illustrations would rivet into our heart today and sustain us as we gather together again next week and in our home Bible studies, that, uh, that our love for you would increase. Thank you for the, uh, the, the listening hearts and the eager spirit that this church has towards your word. And I pray that you bless them for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks, you guys, for listening. We'll see you next time.